Okay, uh, if you turn the page of your bulletin, you'll see our sermon text, which is Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. <clears throat> you can follow along there. Um, we've been in Matthew's gospel for like a year and a half. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're getting there. Uh, I think I calculated at this pace, uh, it will be 115.5 sermons until we are uh, done. Uh, I mean, overall, that's the total number of sermons in Matthew's gospel. And this is uh, number 67, I think. So, <laughs> um, All right. So uh, this is a passage where Jesus um, very explicitly for the first time uh, talks about his own death and resurrection to the disciples. So when Jesus foretold his own death and resurrection, uh, you know, it just wasn't wasn't just an amazing prophecy meant to demonstrate his supernatural knowledge of the future uh, or to confirm the divine truth claims of the gospel, right? It's more significant than just saying something like, you know, Jesus knew things in advance, things no one but God could possibly know, or, you know, look how Jesus fulfills all these prophecies made about him or even during his own lifetime. Uh, That's not how his disciples originally received it when he taught them about his forthcoming death and resurrection. In fact, his disciples didn't receive this teaching at all. They rejected the idea. Peter rebuked Jesus, told Jesus that he must be wrong. And uh, even after the resurrection, after what Jesus foretold had come to pass, Matthew doesn't record uh, this in his gospel just to show that, you know, Jesus was right all along about everything. It's not just about that. I mean, that's true. Jesus has been right all along about everything. Um, but he didn't just teach about his death and resurrection in advance so that he could, you know, go back afterwards and say, see, I told you so. You should listen to me about everything now. Um, he taught his disciples something that is very hard to hear. His original disciples didn't receive it. They rejected it. He teaches us something that's very hard to hear to help us know what kind of savior he is to help us uh, know what his life is like, to help us know what our life is like with him as as his disciples. So he's teaching us about this for our sake, for our good, because he loves us and he wants us to be with him where he is. So let's consider his teaching here. Uh, Let's consider our resistance to his teaching here and consider why we would ever accept what he has to say about this death and resurrection stuff. So... Uh, Let's talk about that this morning. Um, Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, show us your glory. Shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, who is revealed to us here, and in whose name we pray. Amen. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> well, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, you've heard that probably uh, because of their similar accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, especially you know, when you take them and compare them to how John writes his uh, gospel, very different you know, sort of writing. So they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means uh, literally uh, together view, right? So they, they share a view. Uh, even though they share much in terms of you know, perspective and structure and language. Uh, they're not identical. There are many significant differences between the synoptic gospels that help us to have a fuller picture of Jesus. We need all three to have the fullest picture of Jesus. So it's, it's important to notice what each gospel writer is doing when his account differs from the other accounts. <clears throat> it's also important to notice when the gospel writers include the same things, when they all hit on the same things together. That's important. When all three synoptics insist on keeping several paragraphs together in the same context, uninterrupted, and in the same order, then it helps you understand that there's a strong link there, a strong connection between those paragraphs in terms of their meaning. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to see those connections. When we look at one paragraph, like this first paragraph, and we think, oh, that's okay, that's about one thing. And then we look at the next paragraph and think, well, that's about something else entirely, isn't it? Uh, Because it doesn't seem to follow from the first. Well, uh, when all three synoptics keep them together, it's probably for a reason. The two paragraphs we just read uh, might not seem connected to you. It might seem that the second paragraph is a non sequitur, that it doesn't follow after the first paragraph. What you have there at the beginning, uh, Jesus foretells his, his own death and resurrection. Peter rejects that idea and rebukes him. And then Jesus rebukes Peter, sets him straight. And then we might think, <clears throat> well, what Jesus really needs to do next is explain the significance of his death and resurrection. Because that, you know, Peter was resisting something there. Jesus needs to explain more about his own death and resurrection. Sit his disciples down, tell them, why he's got to die, that he's going to die for the forgiveness of their sins, for their salvation, then maybe they'd get it, right? Maybe they'd begin to appreciate what Jesus really came to do. But instead of going on to explain, you know, focus on the meaning of his death and resurrection in in terms of sacrifice and atonement and and whatnot, um, instead of doing that, Jesus seems to shift gears and and, uh, explains... Uh, what discipleship is. He gives sort of a mini lecture on what it means to follow him. How does that follow? Uh, isn't that just a bit disjointed? No, uh, the disciples came to understand where Jesus was going with this, and Matthew wrote this because, uh, in a sense, what Jesus teaches his disciples about what it means to follow him in that second paragraph is exactly what they need to hear 
in light of the previous conversation about his own death and resurrection. That's why Matthew and Mark and Luke keep these things together. In fact, they keep uh, several paragraphs together in their different accounts in this whole section. Here's, here's just kind of a run-through of what they keep together in the larger section. First, uh, which we looked at last week, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. Then Jesus foretells his own death and resurrection, and Peter rebukes Jesus for that. And then Jesus rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. And then all the synoptic gospels include, uh, you know, Jesus teaching on this discipleship, take up your cross and follow me. And then Jesus takes Peter and James and John up to the mountain to witness his transfiguration. And then the disciples fail to heal this boy who has a demon, but Jesus succeeds where they failed. And then Jesus again foretells his death and his resurrection. And man, those stories just seem like they don't have anything to do with each other. But, the, uh, but there's this theme. There's a lot of significance in the fact that these things happened together and that the disciples saw them as connected and developing a theme that the gospel writers see them together as part of a bigger picture. So what's, that, what's the bigger picture here? What's the connection between our paragraphs this morning? How does this conversation about Jesus' death and resurrection lead into this conversation about discipleship? What is Jesus teaching us here and why? Well, uh, I think this is the first main question that we need to ask that will get us deeper into this. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? (laughs) Why does Peter respond the way that he does when Jesus teaches that he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead? What's the problem with that that Peter has? Peter's, again, you know, he's sort of a representative of the disciples, in this, it's the, the view of the disciples, and Peter, Peter is sort of one of the main disciples. <clears throat> His view that what Jesus says here is bad. Why? Why does Peter have this response? <clears throat> it's because Peter has preconceptions about the Christ that he is committed to. Peter is committed to his own preconceptions, we will say misconceptions, about Christ. Peter has just, uh, in the passage prior to this, just recognized and confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Big deal. He's the Hebrew Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the, the son of the living God. Peter has said that, and uh, Jesus has confirmed that, that that was a good thing for Peter to confess. That was from God that he made that confession. It's just that, you know, like pretty much all the Jews during that time, Peter assumed uh, this meant everything was going to be victory and glory and roses uh, from now on, right? Now that Jesus was here. Peter assumed things like this because just like every other sinner in the world, Peter thought that God's love for his people, God's salvation, it must mean sparing us from pain. It must mean delivering us from worldly difficulty and injustice. And oppression has to mean those things. That's his assumption. That's our assumption. If God loves us, he's going to spare us from those things. The Christ was supposed to deliver Israel from Roman tyranny. That's what everybody thought, right? The Christ was supposed to take away our suffering, not go to his own suffering. What does that mean? If the Christ goes to his own death, well, that's... That's pretty much the opposite of what we would have wanted for ourselves. His death, that would be a failure, a huge failure, a crushing defeat 
and a really bad omen for us, his people. If he dies, then we're probably going to die too. And that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want pain like that. Peter was committed to this idea of, you know, it's a kingdom of God where he would live as one of the important disciples, uh, you know, a life of importance and ease and comfort, a life of clear and obvious victory over the enemies and where evil gets punished and the good get rewarded and so forth, right? In fact, Peter was more committed to his worldly conceptions of the Christ than he was to the real Jesus who was talking about going to the cross. So when Jesus came talking about the true kingdom of God, not just this idea of it that's in Peter's head, stuck there. When Jesus comes talking about the kingdom of God, it means things like the king suffering and dying. Well, Peter, like everybody else in the world, opposes that idea. He opposes that conception of God's kingdom. Peter took Jesus aside, began to rebuke him, saying, you know, he's being as respectful as possible. Take him aside. Let's not do this in public. But far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Uh, Jesus needed to catch a new vision. (laughs) Jesus needed to catch Peter's vision, right, for for life. One that uh, doesn't involve suffering and death. death, One where we just go from victory to victory and from glory to glory. That'd be great. Uh, But one does not simply go up to Jesus and rebuke him. (laughs) Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So that's about the strongest rebuke that you can imagine. The Son of God calls you the devil, right? I mean, he's just five verses before. He's renamed Simon Peter Rock. Yeah, he's a rock, all right. A hindrance literally means a stumbling block. That's what that means. Uh, Peter is only thinking of things from his earthly perspective, his worldly, human, really ultimately self-centered perspective. By telling Jesus that he shouldn't have to suffer and die, Peter is actively opposing Jesus in the work he came to do. You might think it's well-meaning, right? Why would he want Jesus to suffer and die? But he's actively opposing Jesus in the work that he came to do. So it's not that Peter is you know, stupid and can't understand what Jesus is saying. It's that Peter just doesn't like it. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants Jesus to stop talking about it. He doesn't want this to be true. He doesn't want what is the Father's plan to be true. Because what does it mean if the Christ, the true king, the very best human being who ever lived, goes to suffer and die? What does that mean for the people of Christ, for those who follow this king? And if the cross is the fate of our king, doesn't that mean we should expect crosses? Isn't that going to be our shared fate? Yeah, that's what it means. We have a problem with that. We cannot bear that thought. So we fight Jesus on it. Maybe, maybe, you know, we don't say it out loud and don't go so far as to tell Jesus, no, I don't like that plan. I don't like your plan for us. I don't like your plan for me. But somewhere in the back of our minds, we're hanging on to the thought that, you know, we can be Christians who just get along with the world. There shouldn't be any speed bumps in this life. We could be a Christian and be prosperous all the time. 
That's in the back of our minds. Being a Christian means, you know, we deserve to be spared from physical ills, spared from financial distress, spared from relational pain, spared from hostility or injustice. When we face these things, that doesn't make any sense to us. That's not how life is supposed to be for Christians. But we have assumptions like that, and when we do, uh, whether we voice them to Jesus or not, uh, we can get upset at him if things turn out otherwise. <clears throat> We're afraid of suffering. We hate the idea that God would allow it. We hate the idea that Jesus would lead us and go before us straight into it. And that is why Jesus doesn't simply explain, you know, the, the salvific efficacy of his death, <laughs> the atoning sacrifice. He doesn't just go on to explain our need for that, as if what we really needed was just more information to be able to understand and embrace all this business about his death and Father's plan in it. <clears throat> no, instead, Jesus addresses the real problem head on, and he tells his, tells his disciples what it means to be disciples, what it means to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. <clears throat> Jesus is not the kind of Christ who came into the world to conquer Rome, to set his people up with a life that is free of troubles or pain. Jesus is the kind of Christ who came to be with us. Whatever we face in life, to share in our lives, to share his own life with us, to share his relationship with God with us. And this is the heart of his life. He came to share his life with us. This is the heart of of his life, Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves people who are very difficult to love. Jesus loves people who reject him all day long. Jesus loves people who resent him, who despise him, who hate him. Jesus loves people who want to be rid of him, who given the opportunity would be rid of him. Jesus endures alienation. He endures abandonment. He endures betrayal and false accusations and physical and psychological abuse and mocking and shaming and the most terrible injustice. Jesus endures all these things without retaliation, without defending himself, without even complaining. <clears throat> Jesus suffers and dies faithfully, his life utterly devoted to God, with words of forgiveness for sinners on his lips. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves people who are hard to love. That's what that means. <clears throat> what Jesus is doing on the cross when he gives his life for the forgiveness of our sins is very simply loving people who are difficult to love, loving people who reject him and mistreat him, loving them with all of his being to the very end. This is his absolute faithful devotion to God. In this, he embodies the love of God to us. This is the glory of God that's revealed to us. This is the life of God coming to the world. 
Jesus lost his life. He released it. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. But he lost it in order to truly find life, life everlasting. His life was restored. When the Father raised him in the power on the, uh, on the third day, the power of his spirit, Because that's how it works with God. That's what Jesus reveals to us. You you find your life when you lose it, when you give it away, for love's sake. Love is a kind of a death to self. That's what he's talking about here, dying to self, denying self. Love is a kind of death to self. But even more, love is life. It means life. It's divine, eternal life. It is true for the Lord of life himself who loved us and gave himself for us. And so it will also be true for those who follow him, who are united to him as we take up our crosses. So with Jesus, crosses are transformed. So in the Roman world, crosses were brutal instruments of torture and shame and death. But with Jesus, crosses are instruments of love. And eternal life. As it was with Jesus, our cross is where we love people who are difficult to love. That's basically what it means. Our cross is where we give to people who just want to take everything away from us. And we give freely. Our cross is where it looks like our enemies win. Our cross is where we're tempted to dwell bitterly on the wrongs that are done to us, but it's where we forgive those who abuse us and we pray for them. Our cross is where we suffer real pain, the pain of rejection, the pain of injustice, without seeking revenge, without getting defensive, without even complaining. Our cross is where we lose our lives, where we let go of the kinds of things that normally people would insist constitute our lives. This is what makes life what it is. Our cross is where we let go of things like that. Things like health and wealth and basic human dignity. Where people rob us of those things, but we don't fight it, but just keep faithfully loving them for Jesus' sake, even to the very end. Who's up for that? Who wants to have anything to do with a life like that? Who? Why would anyone want to take up such crosses? Because it means following Jesus and coming after him and sticking close to him. Because it's what God does when he comes into this world as one of us. And we love him because he loved us. And we want to be with him. And we want to be like him, which is the only life. That's it. That's the only reason. It's because we see the love of Christ in his cross, the love of God for people who are very difficult to love, the love of God for us. And we don't just see death in it. We see life in it. True life, eternal life, the only life, life that cannot be taken away Life that conquers death. 
So remember, Jesus didn't just foretell his suffering and death. He foretold that he would be raised from the dead on the third day with a glorious, immortal humanity that continues forever in God's presence, never to die again. His, his resurrection was, in a sense, the inevitable result of his faithful life of complete love. And he said we could join him in his self-giving life, in his death-conquering life, in his inevitable life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he says. This is the glory of life in his kingdom, which Jesus promises to share with those who are with him. At the end of our passage, Jesus points again to this promise. You know, he's talking about um, coming in his kingdom. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then what do you see in the very next paragraph? You see the transfiguration. Looks like the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. This is, you know, he's transformed. He's transfigured. There's something new. There's something glorious that the disciples can't put their finger on, right? But he's glowing. There's something of heaven has come into him and come around him, right? <clears throat> so it's a vision of the resurrected and glorified Jesus, the one whose life conquers death, the Son of Man come in the fullness of his kingdom. This is what happens next. This is the promise of where things are going with Jesus after his suffering and death. Things are going there with Jesus after his suffering and death. This is the promise of God to those who share in his life, who pour themselves out for love's sake, for Christ's sake. Because Jesus suffered and died and was raised, and because we belong to him, we're united with him, and he is always with us. Because his death-conquering life is ours as a gift of his grace, then we can say and we can sing, ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. We can say, we can sing, Jesus is ours. That is the only reason to pick up our crosses and follow a crucified Christ. To be in fellowship with Jesus, who was crucified, who now is risen. So if you share his life with him, then no matter what suffering you face, you can know it will lead to your resurrection and glory in his presence. Whatever's true of Jesus will become true of you if you belong to him. So take up your cross and follow him for his sake to be with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your life is found only in your son who came into this world, suffered, died, and was raised, all in order to share your life with us. Help us to find true life, eternal life, uh, to find inevitable life, in him. Give us your spirit so that we will look to the crucified and risen Lord. Look to his cross and see not death alone, but life. And then take up our own crosses and follow him. Help us to see that you have loved us when we were impossible to love and help us to love others in the same way, praying for them and forgiving them for the sake of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.